Thank you for joining us today. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to watch is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point in this series, we've seen the establishment of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the beginning of his earthly ministry. We've studied his teaching as he has taught through parables, sermons, and daily life with his disciples. And we've seen his miraculous power over nature, sin, sickness, and spiritual darkness. Our entire study through the Gospel of Mark thus far is available in our feed. We'd love for you to join in. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead, open up the Hope Church LV app or visit us at hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning, Hope Church family. It's good to see all of you. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Mark chapter 8. We're going to study today verses 31 through 33 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through this beautiful book of the Bible. Today we're going to study a story about an interaction between Jesus and one of his disciples, Peter, that if we're just being honest, on the surface, seems ridiculous. Like, Like, when we look at it, we're going to think, Peter, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) But what what I'm convinced of, and what I hope to convince you of, is that as we dig a little deeper in this story, what Peter's doing actually isn't that far off from what we do on a semi-consistent basis when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. What we're going to see happens between Jesus and Peter, it actually hits a little closer to home than we might have originally thought. See, what we're going to find in this story is a disciple of Jesus who's disappointed with Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? It's okay, we can be honest, we're in church, if you can't be honest here, you can't be honest anywhere, right? You ever found yourself disappointed with Jesus? Confused by God? Frustrated, perplexed, maybe even in your worst moments, mad at God? You ever find yourself thinking when you look at the circumstances of your life, God, what are you doing? I mean, considering what we just prayed about, it doesn't, it's not very hard for us to look at the world and look at the circumstances of the world and go, God, what? If you're all loving, if you're all powerful, how can you let this happen? Maybe you found yourself in a relationship with Jesus, you've been following him for some time, and then you find yourself saying this either out loud or maybe even in your own heart, like, Jesus, I don't know what all I signed up for when I decided to follow you, but I know I didn't sign up for this. Listen, I just wanna tell you if, if that's you today, if that's where you find yourself today, Listen, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. And the story that we're gonna study today is where I think we're gonna find some hope. Because what we're gonna see in this story today is that the way Jesus does things is not always the way we would want him to do things, but in hindsight, we're gonna find that the way he does things is always the right way to do things, even if it doesn't make sense to us. What we're gonna do as we study Mark chapter eight is is we're gonna study just these three verses together. 
But in order to understand and really make sense of the disappointment that Peter is having with Jesus, we've got to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on in this story. Just so you know, the book of Mark is broken up into two halves. You've got the first half, one through eight. You've got the second half, nine through 16. And, and we're right here in the, in the center of this story where, where the two halves are, are breaking off. And we're gonna move towards the second half of the book for the remainder of our time as we study this. But what you find when you study the book of Mark and what we've seen for the last year and a half as we've been studying this is chapters one through eight are all about Jesus proving through his life, through his teachings, and through his miracles that he really is the long-awaited Messiah. Everything he's been doing is trying to prove to people and to his disciples he really is the king that they've been waiting for. Do you remember Jesus' very first words in the book of Mark? Look at it, I'm gonna put it up on the screen. The very first words of Jesus when he begins his ministry in the book of Mark are these. Here's what he says. The time's fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Other translations of that verse say the kingdom of God has come near. It's here. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, here's what Jesus has been saying. I know people of Israel, you've been waiting for so long for the long-awaited Messiah and guess what? The time's fulfilled. I'm here. He's here. I'm really the king. These are his very first words. And you can imagine as people interact with Jesus and recognize that his message is authenticated by his life and his teachings, you can imagine the joy and the hope and the excitement that all of these people have as they start following Jesus. We actually saw an example of this last week with Peter. If you remember, Pastor Scott taught us from, from Mark chapter eight when Jesus asked his disciples this question. And it's a key question for every single person to answer. Here was the question. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? You know what Peter says? You are the Christ. You're the Christ. In other words, you're the one we've been waiting for, Jesus. You can imagine if you're Peter, he gets it right. He sees Jesus for who he really is as the long-awaited Messiah, as the king. You can imagine the joy and the hope and the expectation that Peter has because he's thinking, okay, he's here. Now he's gonna establish his kingdom. He's gonna defeat darkness, defeat evil, overthrow injustice. He's gonna make it all right. But then we read the verses that we're gonna study today. So with that as the context, knowing what Peter's probably feeling, imagine what he feels when he hears what Jesus says here. So Mark chapter eight, verse 31 through 33, listen to God's word. This is Jesus, it says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And look at this, verse 32, and he said this plainly. I think it's very interesting that Mark notes that, but I think the point is this, Jesus was not joking. He wasn't joking, he wasn't teaching in parables, he was very clear. 
this is what's going to happen. Now, Peter, obviously confused, obviously not understanding what's going on, maybe even disappointed, frustrated, look what he does. (laughs) And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You don't rebuke Jesus. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter and said, here we go, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What's happening here? Here's what's happening. See, the first Eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark are all about Jesus proving that he's the king. But now we're, we're at a point where the story is shifting. Up until this point, it's all about Jesus proving he's king, but now the rest of the story and the rest of the Gospel of Mark is all about that king going to a cross. And isn't it interesting? <laughs> Jesus came to establish his kingdom And yet, he's saying now, listen, the way I'm going to do that is by going to a cross. Can you imagine the confusion in Peter? Can you imagine the confusion with his disciples? Can you imagine even the disappointment? What do you mean, Jesus? You're here to establish your kingdom. You're here to overthrow everything. You're here to make everything right. And you're going to die? That's not how this works, Jesus. See, this is why Peter's disappointed. And so for our time together, what we're gonna do is we're gonna study just two main movements from this story. Two main movements, I'll put them up on the screen. We're gonna study first Jesus' proclamation here, like, like what really is he telling his disciples with these statements? And then we're gonna look at Peter's problem because Peter does have a problem, amen? But our hope is that after we've talked through these things, our hope is and our prayer is for for you and for everybody here today is that we would have a clearer picture of the purposes behind Jesus' proclamation here and also that we would know how to live in such a way as to not get in the way of what Jesus is trying to do in establishing his kingdom. So first, we're gonna talk about Jesus' proclamation. Here's two realities from what Jesus teaches right here in this text. Here's the first reality. Number one, Jesus planned to die. Jesus planned to die. Look at verse 31 again. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What is he doing? Jesus here is communicating clearly to his disciples and to us that when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come just to live, but he came to die. He came to die. This was a part of his mission. In other words, we see from this passage that Jesus is not merely predicting his death. He had planned his death. Do you see it here? He must suffer. This is a plan. It's not like Jesus is coming up with this plan right here in this moment. He's going, no, this has been the plan all along. See, Jesus here is not at the mercy of the religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He's not at the mercy of them. 
He's not saying, hey, I'm just gonna live my life and then what's gonna happen is eventually, because I'm not capable or I'm not powerful enough or in authority that these people who are in authority, they're gonna take my life. That's not what he's saying. How do we know that? Because Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 18, says this about his very life. Listen to what he says. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. That's a good place to say amen. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, listen, my life is not at the mercy of these religious leaders. I am voluntarily laying down my life. Jesus in another place of the scripture says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. What is this all communicating? It's communicating to us that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he had a plan and his plan was to die. But you ever ask this question, <laughs> why? Why, Jesus, why did you plan to die? Well, this leads us to the second thing we see from these passages, from these verses. Number two, Jesus' plan is a necessity. He planned to die because his death and what he was trying to accomplish with his death was a necessity. The key verse, the key word, excuse me, in, this, in these verses is this word, must. It is the most crucial word in this passage. It says Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer, must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and after three days rise again. There are four things Jesus tells us in this passage that must happen for his kingdom to be established here on earth. The first thing is that Jesus must suffer. The second is that he must be rejected. The third is that he must be killed. And notice, it's not just die, it's literally be killed. And then thank goodness, number four, for his kingdom to be established, he must rise again, right? But there are four things that Jesus is telling us that not that these things might happen, not that they even could happen, or not that they even will happen. Jesus is making a distinction here. These must happen. See, Jesus is telling his disciples and us that his death is not an option. It's a necessity. Either these things happen or his kingdom would not be established here on earth. But let's just ask this question. Because if you're anything like me, you grew up in church. I like to joke sometimes, like I, I think most of you know my, my story. I'm, I'm a pastor's kid, and so the way I kind of joke about it is when it came to church for me in my life, basically I came out of the womb coming to church. Like my first day, I was like down here on the altar. That's just like what happened for my life. I don't know life apart from church. And, and if you grew up like me at all, or if you've been around Christianity at all, when it comes to Jesus's death, if we're not careful, if you're like me, you, you can start to become numb to this reality, to this statement, that God died. You ever ask yourself that question, like, why in the world did God, Jesus, God in the flesh, have to die? Think about that for a second. That is a monumental statement. Why did God have to die? 
Well, what I wanna do just for a little bit of time is give you two reasons. And, and let me be very clear, there are way more than two reasons for why Jesus had to die. But here's my hope in giving you these two reasons. My hope is that when we see these two reasons for why Jesus had to die, here's what happens. It fuels your love and trust for Jesus in a way that hasn't happened to you in a long time. Here's what I'm praying happens. As you see the why behind the what, it gives you a picture of clarity that you didn't have before, which results in a kind of love and trust in Jesus that is deeper than you had when you walked in here this morning, okay? So let me give you just two reasons, just two reasons, very short two reasons for why Jesus had to die. Number one, here's the first reason. Jesus had to die in order to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus had to die in order to fulfill the scriptures. See, here's what's interesting. Hundreds of years before this story in Mark chapter eight took place, Old Testament writers and scriptures were written about a man who would one day come and suffer and be rejected and be killed. One example of this happening is in Isaiah 53. This is a passage of scripture that we would call a prophecy, a prophecy about this man. And, and let's just look at it in Isaiah 53. And as we look at it, I want you to see the connections between what was written hundreds of years ago and what we're seeing Jesus teach now. Here's what it says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now here's a beautiful, beautiful prophetic word. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Do you see the imagery? He was crushed for our iniquities. Why do I bring this up? Here's what I want you to see. These verses in Isaiah 53 about a man who would be despised and rejected, afflicted, crushed, pierced, these were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And now Jesus is saying, that's what must happen to me. In other words, what Jesus is showing is that these verses are about him. They're about him, and what Jesus is doing in his life, death, and resurrection is he's dying to fulfill God's word. He's dying to fulfill God's word, and here's how this should affect you and me today as Las Vegans living in 2023. Here's how this should affect us. We should rejoice and celebrate in the reality that even over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, through the good and the bad, through the highs and the lows, what we see in Jesus in this moment is that what God promises, God performs. What God says, God secures. And what God declares, God does. God fulfilling his word is a really big deal because it proves that our God is always trustworthy. He's always trustworthy. He doesn't break his word to his people. God is not a liar, and if he was, we can't trust him. And we're still in our sins. 
But Jesus died in order to fulfill the scriptures to prove that the God that was prophesied about, the man that was prophesied about hundreds of years before, listen, he's here now and I've fulfilled that. I've kept my word from the very beginning. So listen, whoever you are today, wherever you are, listen, if God's promised you something, trust him. It's just a matter of time. This is why Jesus or in the New Testament tells us that, that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. Why? Why is it yes in Christ? Because God fulfills his word. Here's the second reason why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die in order to grant us life in the kingdom of God. See, here's the offensive truth of the gospel. It's because of us that we are separated from God. That it's because of our own sin, our own rejection of God, that we're separated from God. That it's because of our sin that we owe a debt to God that, that has to be paid in order for our relationship with him to be restored. And the question of the scriptures and the question of our life is this, who's gonna pay that debt? Who's gonna pay it? You know, I was, as I was thinking about this message this week and thinking about debt in particular and paying a debt, I was reminded of a story that, that took place in my life in college. When I was in college, I, my wife, my, my now wife, we were at the time, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend. We were hanging out with some of our friends at my parents' house. And we were out in the front yard and I had my friend Jacob over and, and Griffin had her friend Jessica over. And we were just all hanging out and it was a good time. And we decided one day that we were just gonna play some golf in my parents' front yard. And we were just gonna chip, chip some golf balls. Some of you are like, oh, I know where this is going. Now, here's the deal. If you know me, you know I'm a golfer. I love golf. I'm not very good, but I love it, and I try to play it. I get to play it tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen. Woo, I'm excited. But listen, I'm a golfer, and let's just say for the sake of the story, Jacob's not a golfer, <laughs> okay? So what happens is I'm chipping the golf ball back and forth, and I chip Jacob a golf ball about 30 yards. And when you hit a 30-yard shot, you basically just... Do that. It's just a little short. Do you like my golf swing? You just, just real short. Now, Jacob, love Jacob, but again, not a golfer. Jacob decides he's going to hit this golf ball back. And what Jacob does, you know, he, he should have watched me. But what Jacob does is this. And when he did that, my life flashed before my eyes. <laughs> because this man, not 30 yards away, he goes, Whoa-boom, takes a full swing. And he doesn't just like hit the ball well and it go really up high. No, he, he stings the golf ball. He thins the golf ball. And what that means is it's a line drive coming straight for Jessica's car. So as a good friend, here's what I do. I dive in front of the golf ball to try to block this golf ball. And guess what? I've got good hand-eye coordination. It hit my hand. <laughs> Felt like I broke my hand, but it hit my hand, and here's what happened. The golf ball ricocheted off my hand and then smashed and completely destroyed Jessica's side view mirror. <laughs> it's <was> awesome. <laughs> here's what Jacob does. Oh my gosh, Jessica, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll fix it. I'll pay for whatever I got to do. I'll, I'll fix the mirror, I'll do whatever I've gotta do. And here's Jessica, she's just so sweet. Jessica says, no. <laughs> I don't know why she didn't do that. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> 
she said, she said, she said, no, Jacob, it's okay. I'll pay for it. You didn't mean to do that. I'll pay for it. Now, why do I tell you that ridiculous story? <laughs> I tell you that ridiculous story because in order for that mirror, that mirror to be restored back to its original design, to be restored back to its original purpose, to be fixed, somebody had to pay that debt. Either Jacob had to pay that debt or Jessica had to pay that debt. And friends, the same thing is true about us in our relationship with God. See, we have a debt. The Bible tells us that for the wages of sin is death. That is what our sin owed, death. We've got a debt. And the scriptures are clear that if we want our relationship with God to be restored back to its original design, if we want our lives to be restored back to its original purpose, if we want our life to be, be brought into the kingdom of God and, and for things to be made right the way God designed them to be from the very beginning, somebody's gotta pay that debt. Look what Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22 says. This just puts it even clearer. It says, without the shedding of blood, this isn't like just a little cut, this is literally imagery of somebody losing their life as a sacrifice, there is no remission. The word remission is just a word that means the cancellation of a debt. Without the losing of a life, there is no remission of sin. Here's the point. In order for our sin to be canceled out, our sin debt to be canceled out, somebody's gotta lose their life. And here's the beautiful news of the gospel. Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to look that sin in the face, look that debt in the face and say, listen, I'll take on that debt for you. I'll pay that debt with my life so that you never have to. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus took your place. He took your place. This is why we celebrate, we should celebrate the beauty of probably the most famous verse in all the scriptures, John three sixteen. look at it. For God so loved. Isn't that good news? He loves you. He loves this world. Why and how did he prove it? That he gave his only son to do what? To live and die and raise again to new life in your place so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus perished so that you and I would never have to. Listen, I, I just, um, I, I had the privilege, I had the privilege two weeks ago of, of performing and doing uh, my grandmother's funeral. My grandmother was 84 years old and, and, and she's with Jesus now. She lived a great life, it was awesome. It was a beautiful time to be able to do the funeral for my grandmother. But here's what I got to tell everybody at, at my grandmother's funeral. That because of Jesus taking the sting of death for my grandmother, listen, my grandmother did not pass from life to death. My grandmother passed from life into life. Listen, 
If you're a follower of Jesus today, because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, listen, death does not have a hold on you in even the slightest bit. Death can no longer touch you. When you pass on one day, listen, you don't go to death, you go to eternal life. You move from life to life. This is the good news of the gospel, and here's the beauty of it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. All you did was create the problem. But Jesus fixed the problem. It's all grace. See, this is why Jesus had to die. And see, here's what's interesting. We know this now on this side of history, don't we? We know this. But here's what's interesting. Peter and his disciples, they didn't understand this at this point. You see, up until this point, no one had ever really associated the coming king and his kingdom with suffering. Here's what I mean. They thought the coming king would establish his kingdom the way every other king establishes his kingdom, through war, political ideas, or control, or forceful domination. And this is what leads us to the second thing, the second movement, which is Peter's problem. And, and let's be honest, which is our problem as well. Here's what happens, verse 32 and 33. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Again, don't do that. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's what we notice from Peter's problem. The first problem we see with Peter is with his mouth and with his actions. See, the text says that Peter took him aside and rebuked him. This word rebuke, it's, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes Peter here, but it's also interesting that it's the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes the demons in the Gospel of Mark. Here's what that, that's communicating. When Peter is rebuking Jesus, he's using the strongest language possible, suggesting to us that as I talk about disappointment with God, disappointment might not be a strong enough word to convey to us what Peter really feels in this moment. Peter might actually not just be disappointed, he's mad. He's mad. Now, what would lead to Peter turning on Jesus this fast? Think about Peter's just last few moments. Just last week, we studied Peter getting it right. Getting it right, the way I've thought about it this week, it's like Peter was standing up to bat. He was batting, and last week, he hit a home run. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. He smashes it, hits a home run, gets it. But then his next at bat, not even three verses later, Peter steps up to bat, strikes out swinging on three pitches, and then if that wasn't bad enough, he turns to the umpire, starts arguing with the umpire, and then the umpire kicks him out of the game. That's basically what just happened to Peter here. He had a massive success and then a colossal failure. Now, before we judge Peter too hard, is that not reflective of our life? We can have moments where we're on it. We've got a Sunday, we're, 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 we're hitting home runs all day Sunday, and then Monday comes. Now, what would lead to this? What would have compelled this switch so fast? See, here's what we see. We see from this text that his problem began in his mind before it was ever reflected in his words and actions. See, Peter's actions and his words are simply the fruit of where his mind was set. 
See, because his mind was on the wrong things, what Jesus is showing us is that he's becoming an obstacle to Jesus and his kingdom and what he's doing. See, here's what we learn from Peter. I'm gonna put it in a spiritual reality statement. Here's what we learn from Peter. That God's plan is not disappointing. Our desires are just distorted. Hope Church, I just wanna be very clear to you. God is never the problem. Our perception's the problem. Where we set our mind is the problem. God is never the problem. I'm reminded of the scriptures that where God tells us that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher, which means that sometimes there is going to be a gap in our hearts and in our minds when it comes to Jesus fulfilling his plans in our life and us actually understanding that and being submissive to them. And the key to being people who, instead of being an obstacle in the way of Jesus, joyfully cooperate with Jesus in his kingdom and his plans for us, the key, according to this passage, is where we set our minds, friends. Where we set our minds. Look what Jesus says in response to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind on the things of man. See, I read this originally, and I thought it would make a lot of sense for him to say, get behind me, Satan, you're setting your mind on the things of Satan. But that's not what he says here. He says, you're setting your mind on the things of man. Now, why is that? Why is that? Here's why that is. Because apparently in Jesus' mind, there is a connection between the ways of Satan and the ways of man. In other words, the thinking and ways of man in Jesus' mind are awfully similar to the thinking and ways of Satan. See, Jesus is not literally calling Peter Satan. What he's doing is he's calling Peter, he's telling Peter that he's thinking satanically. He's thinking like Satan. Here's what we know about Satan, that Satan will do whatever he can to get in the way of Jesus establishing his kingdom on earth. And what's happening here is Peter, the way he's thinking, is leading him to rebuke Jesus because in his mind, death is not the way you establish the kingdom of God. You do it like everybody else. See, whatever Peter is thinking about, whatever he's thinking about is not in line with the way of the kingdom of God. So here's a question for you and for me. Where's our mind? What is your mind set on most often? The things of man or the things of God? Are we allowing the spirit of, of the flesh to lead our mind wherever it wills? Or are we submitting our mind to the things of God, to the spirit of God and allowing the spirit to lead our mind to wherever he wills? This is crucial to our discipleship and following of Jesus. Listen to Paul, the Apostle Paul, as we get ready to close, to the Colossians church in Colossians chapter three. This is one of the primary ways that you and I follow Jesus in our daily lives. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, another way to say this is since you've been raised with Christ, now that you're a Christian, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated seated at the right hand of God. And then here's what he says. It's a command, set your mind. In other words, direct your mind. Set 
your attention on what? On the things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Here's what I love about Paul here. Paul is confronting the lie that, tell, that our culture tells us. Paul's confronting the lie that you and I can't control our thought life. We're inundated and, and consumed with so much from our culture and our phones and technology, all this stuff. We, we get so much thrown at our minds and what Paul's saying is, listen, I know you've got all that coming to your attention, but listen, you, because you've been raised with Christ and you've got the spirit of God living inside you, you don't have to be subjective to those things. You can set your mind on things above those things. You can set your thinking. You can control it by the spirit and grace of God. But let's just be honest as we close. That's a lot easier said than done, is it? That is very easier said than done. So how do we become the kind of people who live constantly with our minds set on God rather than on things of man? And I just wanna, here's the key. Here's the key to becoming that kind of person. You ready for it? I wanna encourage you, write this down. The key to becoming somebody who sets their mind on things of God, not on things of man, is by consistently filling your mind with the things of God. See, it is much easier to set your mind on the things of God when you have previously filled your mind with the things of God. You actually have something to set your mind on. And so as we close, I just wanna give you three very simple, literally super simple practices for ways we can fill our minds with the things of God. And there are many more than just three, but here's three that I try to practice on a regular basis. And just hear me, these are not commands from scripture, this is wisdom for life, okay? These practices, these handles are just the things that you and I can do that enable God to do what we can't do, which is transform us over the course of time. So here's three things we can do. Number one, scripture memorization and meditation. I wanna encourage you, if you're not setting aside time every single day at some point to spend unhurried, alone time with Jesus in his word and in prayer, we call it here God time, abiding in Christ. Man, I just wanna encourage you, if you don't do that, you're not gonna have anything stored in your mind that you can set your mind on. You've We've gotta be people who are filling our minds with the things of God's word, the truths of God's word. And so I just wanna encourage you, scripture memorization is not for baby Christians. It's not just for our kids, it's for us. Fill your mind with the truth of God and then meditate on it. Number two, structure your day for refilling your mind. Here's what I mean. I break my day up into three chunks. I've got a morning chunk before I go to work, I've got a midday chunk while I'm at work, and then I've got a day after a chunk of my day after I put my kids to sleep. And here's what I try to do. I try to use those natural breaks in the day as opportunities for me to fill my mind with the things of God. So in the morning, I'm having my God time. In the middle of the day, I have an alarm on my phone that goes off at 11.45 every day. And here's what it says. It's from a little app. 11.45, and it says, got some time to pray. <laughs> and what I try to do is try to take, even if it's two minutes, in the middle of my day, I try to fill my mind again with the things of God. Read an article, read a devotional, pray something. And then at the end of my day, I try to close out my day as much as possible praying for you. Praying for you and, and asking God's blessing and favor. This is just a way for me to set my mind on the things of God throughout my day. And then here's the final one. This is, a, this is a, one of my personal favorites. Read some good books. 
God has given us gifts and authors who love Jesus, who write things that are incredible as ways to help fill our minds with the things of God. So I just wanna encourage you, you might not be a reader, but maybe this week you read something. If you don't have a good book to read, we've got a resource center for you to buy a book today, all right? Maybe that's your next step. But here are just very simple ways for us to continually fill our mind with things of God so that when the moment comes, we've got our mind set on God and not on things of man. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Just wanna take a second and allow you just to breathe and just process what you've heard. What is the Spirit of God leading you to do in response? Just like always, we're gonna have pastors down front here. If you're here today and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I just wanna encourage you, Jesus took your place. He took your place so that all you've gotta do is receive him. If you would place your faith and trust in Jesus, you can have eternal life guaranteed to you today. Maybe that's the response for some of you, but maybe for others who are Christians, you found yourself living with your mindset on things of man rather than the things of God. Here's what I wanna encourage you. I wanna encourage you to confess it, to repent of it, and then to ask God by his spirit to fill you, to fill your mind with the things of him. Maybe you're walking through something in your life right now that is causing you to find disappointment with God. Listen, if that's where you are, I just wanna encourage you, trust him. But we would, as pastors, we would love to pray for you, to pray for God's strength and sustaining power in you and for you in that season. So I don't know what the spirit of God is leading you to do, but I wanna encourage you to respond to him in whatever way the spirit leads. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for today. Holy Spirit of God, would you do what only you can do in these final moments. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond to the Lord?